Well, as we continue to gather together in this preparing season of Advent, you've heard a thousand times that Christmas is all about Jesus. And that's really the emphasis of what we want to put our hearts on, is that as we celebrate Christmas, it's all about Jesus Christ. Uh, As Mark's Gospel says, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And as such a tradition uh, in celebrating Christ is surrounding ourselves with our families. We value being with our families at Christmas time. Now, being with family is not always possible, but several of you will probably be driving places or you have family that will come in here in days or weeks to come. And when families get together, even at Christmas, families get together, and I don't have to tell you that conflict can arise, correct? In fact, in preparation for this message this week, I learned a new word that I had not heard of before. I think it's only been in the dictionary six or seven years. The word is hyper-co-presence. Is that a word familiar with many of you? I see a, a, a couple nods, but a lot of blank stares, which is kind of what I had as I discovered. Hyper-co-presence, let me give you the definition, is a large dose of your family all at once. Or my definition in, when family members get all up in your business 24-7 after not having even seen them in months, right? And, and, And how true this is during the Christmas season where family members have to share bedrooms and there's not enough bathrooms. And oftentimes there's these little children running around with maybe people who are not used to having little children running around. And so this type of hyper-co-presence, if you will, of family being all together can cause stress and anxiety and crankiness and, of course, can invite conflict. So I'm experiencing in an academic sense this idea of hyper-co-presence today, but a a week from yesterday, I will experience it in reality as we have all of our family home uh, in months Uh, for Christmas, and there'll be six of us, right, with not enough bedrooms and bathrooms, so, but I'd have it no other way, right? So I'll see if this is a true thing that the psychologists speak of. But we do know that when we're together with our families, there is this potential for conflict. And as we turn to God's Word today, the Apostle James helps us consider what some of the causes of our conflict are. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill, you covet, you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you do ask God, well, you ask him with the wrong motives, and so you don't receive. And he goes on and on. And James gives us some thoughts about what causes this conflict, this quarreling, this fighting that takes place. And I think James kind of hones in uh, on two specific causes that I'd like to kind of bring to the uh, foreground for you this morning. The first one that James talks about is that we have conflict because of our devilish desires. I know you've seen these pictures before in, in cartoons or on sitcoms, this trite expression of the angel sitting on one shoulder and the devil sitting on the other shoulder. And you've wondered, is that, is that really true? I mean, do, do we really have a, a devilish presence and an angelic presence? But you know, as you uh, look to 
church fathers. Like, for example, Martin Luther, he, he, he said once in his Latin tongue that all of us are simul ustus et peccator, which means we are at the same time saints and sinners. And so as represented there, yes, there is an angelic representation inside of us. But unfortunately, there is also the hellish representation inside of us too. And these devilish desires, which we as Lutheran Christians call our sinful nature, oftentimes causes conflict. Now, Martin Luther didn't just make up this idea that we are both saints and sinners. He was a student of the scriptures. And he read the Apostle Paul, and the Apostle Paul could not have been any clearer that when he writes about it here in chapter 7, as we remember James saying, it's devilish desires. Well, Paul starts off and says, I have a desire. I have a desire to do what is good, but I don't find myself carrying that out because for I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil that I do not desire to do. This I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer me doing it. It's sin living inside of me doing it. So I find this at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there beside me. And so this concept that we have these desires based on our sinful nature causes conflict. And if you think about it, sometimes conflict comes down to some questions and some choices that we make. For example, if I wake up in the morning, I can ask myself, do I want to serve people today? Or do I want to be served by people today? You see, if, 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 if I want to be served and you want to serve me, then there's no conflict. But guess what? If we both want to be served in a relationship and nobody's doing the serving, then we have quarrels and fights. Another example, do I want to be a giver today or do I want to be a taker? If a person says, well, I want to be a taker and there's somebody next to them that wants to be their giver, then there's no problem, is there? But what happens when you have two people sitting next to each other that both want to be takers? Then you have conflict. And so these sinful desires that we have are what cause and battle within us and cause many of our conflicts that we have with one another whether it's in our homes, whether it's in our places of work, whether it's within our churches, whether it's in our schools, that we have that sinful nature that gets in the way. But Paul reminds us that though we have this sinful nature, God has placed his Holy Spirit inside of us, and he has, he has commanded us and exhorted us and even uh, resourced us and motivated us to be these people who are devoted to one another in love, that we might honor one another above ourselves, we're called to share with the Lord's people. We're called to practice hospitality. We are encouraged to bless those who persecute us and not to curse them. And we're not to repay people with evil if they do evil to us. And if it's possible, to do everything we can to live at peace with one another. And so living at peace with one another means putting the needs of the other person ahead of our own needs. And instead of thinking about our own devilish desires, that is, our sinful nature, that we put forth a sanctified thought process of how we respond to those around us. And James helps us remind, uh, to be reminded of that today in his scriptures. And so that's one cause that happens when we have conflict with each other. But James also pulls out a second thing 
that, that, that has us sometimes having a conflicted view of our God. And that's when we find ourselves marginalizing our faith. James says, you do not have because you do not ask. I'll put that scripture up there for you. And he says that when you do ask, you oftentimes ask with the wrong motives. Some kind of harsh language there from the Apostle James. But what he's saying is that we can be guilty of pushing God to the margins of our lives. You know what margins are, right? Uh, When you read a book, there is margins in a book. The main part of the book is not in the margins. The main part of the book is the copy that's in the center. It's the paragraph. It is the narrative. It is the story of the novel. But off on the sides, off on the periphery is the margins. And you see, God wants to be the main story in our lives. He doesn't want to be out here as some footnote out in the periphery. And I think sometimes we, even as Christians, can find ourselves getting busy with life and find ourselves maybe pushing God to the margins of our lives instead of keeping him as the central focus of of who we are and, and what we are to do. And James says that when we forget to call on God, when we marginalize him, problems come up in our lives. That when we only call upon God when when we're really desperate, and then we call with the wrong motives, and we don't get what we want, then we can actually be kind of mad at God. And James says this is not right. What we should be doing is calling upon God all the time, being in a relationship of trust with him, and the closer we stay with our God, the more we come to become sympathetical with him and recognize what are the things that God loves to place in our lives, and then we start asking more for those things. And God has a way of blessing us with those things. When we only call upon God in emergencies or out of selfishness, that relationship of trust doesn't get exercised to the fullest, as the Holy Spirit would want us to do. And so James basically identifies two types of conflict here in this early part of chapter 4. He says that we can find ourselves in conflict with one another because of our sinful desires, and that when we marginalize our relationship with God, we can also find ourselves in a conflicted view of, of who our God is, and that both conflict with others and conflict with God can steal the joy that we're trying to harvest in our hearts during this Christmas season. So the question to ask ourselves is, how do we make sure that we don't let this conflict steal our Christmas joy as we prepare for Christmas in the next couple weeks? And the Bible points us to some some tips, some, some realities as it looks to what we should not do and what we should do to not let conflict be uh, the number one thing in our lives. And so James, who is very law-oriented, starts with the law, right? But he says, brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Now, I looked up the legal definition of slander. I thought I understood it, and I did. It's, it's this idea of, of speaking falsely about somebody. And I thought, well, that's pretty basic. We're not supposed to tell lies about people. But I was intrigued if James was really getting at something more than just don't lie about people. So I looked up the biblical word that James used. It's a a Greek word, kataleleo, right? And, and I remember from my Greek classes that that is to speak against somebody. And then I started looking at the definition of the different ways that's used. And it, it definitely means not to slander somebody, but it also means not to speak evil against somebody 
or to not speak bad things about somebody. Now, I got thinking about that. We can speak bad things about somebody that aren't necessarily false, right? And so slander is not the fullness of the exhortation. We are not to speak falsely, but we're also not to say bad things, even if they're true. And that's one of the things James talks about as we seek to live lives that are without conflict, without conflict dominating our relationships. You see, because I don't have to tell you that when we get in a, in a tussle, a fight, a quarrel with somebody else, it's so tempting to want to retaliate. It's so tempting to want to speak against that person. It's so tempting to want to point out their bad things because we feel like we're being attacked. And even though we think that might be fair to pay evil with evil, James says don't do it. We're not to speak against each other. Otherwise, conflict takes over and erases our joy. So then what do we do? Well, as we finish out our message time, let's look to what the Bible says is the opposite of how conflict is to be handled. And that is that God teaches us that in our relationships, we are to be charitable, that we are to be generous, that we are to be loving, that we are to be compassionate, that we are to be grace-filled. So what does that look like in practical terms? What does it mean for me to be love and, and loving and charitable to those in my life in a relationship of love versus a relationship of conflict? Well, let's take a look at that. In very practical terms, here's what love and charity does not do. Love and charity does not say what it could say. Love and charity does not assume the worst in others. And love and charity does not hold a sin against another. That's what the Bible teaches. But even more importantly than it teaching us that, in the very heart of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in the very gospel of the Savior, who we are welcoming at this time of the year, is embody these characteristics. I want to share that with you as we end here. Three quick examples from the life of Jesus. This idea that, first of all, Jesus did not say what he could have said. Now, I want to paint the picture for you here. This is before Jesus is arrested and brought to trial by the Roman authorities. He's first brought to trial by his Jewish counterpart authorities. And as this is happening, the Sanhedrin has brought him in for questioning. They have arranged for a a trial that is illegal as it's being done by night according to law. That was not the proper way to do it. They had lined up all of these false witnesses that were going to speak against Jesus and accuse him of blasphemy and say that he did all of these things. And they had some really imaginative stories, but they couldn't even keep their stories together, Mark tells us. And so after all of this false testimony, after this kangaroo court, the high priest comes to Jesus, stands up before him and says, are you not Jesus going to answer? What is your testimony about these men who are bringing these charges against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. He had every right to say, this court's out of order, right? He had every right to say, this, this, this is not right. These men are lying. You are, you are putting forth, but he, he, he didn't say what he could have. And we know that that's because God had a greater plan that he would go to the cross for our salvation. 
But we see that Jesus didn't always have to get the last word in, even during the most uh, difficult conflicts in his life. Here's, here's another situation in Jesus' life you're familiar with. The idea that Jesus didn't assume the worst about everybody. Now, now you fast forward and he's on the cross. He's been mocked by the Roman soldiers. He's been ridiculed by the criminals next to him. He's been spit upon. He's been whipped. He's been beaten. He's been told, if you are the Messiah, why don't you jump down from that cross and save everybody here? And yet, Jesus could have pulled himself off that cross. He could have hovered over them. He could have instilled the fear of God. He could have told them all what they were doing wrong. But instead, he chooses to say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. Now, as I read the gospel, it sure seems like they know what they're doing. But Jesus is not willing to assume the worst about these people who are even crucifying him. He offers them forgiveness. And he offers them grace and mercy, as he does you and me as well. Last story in the life of Jesus. These are not chronological. This is actually before he's crucified. During his teaching days, the Pharisees are very upset with him. The Pharisees do not like his way of teaching, and so they set up a snare and a trap. They find the most promiscuous woman in town, and they set up a sting operation where they catch her in the act of adultery. And they bring her to Jesus and they throw her down and say, Teacher, we found this woman committing adultery in the law of Moses. It says that she should be stoned to death. What do you say? They got him in the perfect trap. Jesus says, yeah, it does say that, doesn't it? He says, well, why doesn't everybody pick up a stone? And then I want you to line up. But I want the person who's at the front of the line, who's going to start this throwing of the stones, to be the one person who has never committed a sin in their life. Let him cast that first stone, and then the rest of you join in with him. And it says that Jesus stooped down and started scribbling in the sand. Now, this, this, is, this is one of the biggest mysteries of the Bible. What did he do in the sand, right? Um, some think, well, maybe he just was kind of just stalling time for them to kind of think about their lives, you know, and maybe draw a pretty picture. Who knows? Some theologians think that he was actually writing the sins of the men who were standing there with the rocks and that these men, as they saw their sins come up, were just overwhelmed with, how does this guy know us so well? We really don't know. But it says that Jesus straightened up after they all walked away, dropped their stones, and he says to the woman, has no one condemned you? She says, no one, sir. He says, then neither do I condemn you. And then he declares, go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus didn't hold that sin against that woman, just as Jesus doesn't hold our sins against us. Just as Jesus could have said a lot of things about us, but we look forward to him saying one day, well done, good and faithful servant. Even though Jesus could assume the worst about us, he gives us the title of being children of the Heavenly Father. You see, this is at the very heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it's also the recipe to keep conflict from stealing our Christmas joy. And so let us reflect on that verse during these last few weeks 
as we prepare to celebrate the Savior who comes to bring peace on earth. We pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are indeed the Prince of Peace, the King of Kings. Lord, we know that because we are sinful people, there is conflict and quarrels and fighting that that happens because we let our sinful nature get ahead of us. Lord, we pray that during this time, especially with family and friends, that we would be more like you, that we'd be more willing to, uh, to be patient and loving and charitable in our relationships, that we might truly uh, celebrate the joy that is ours and, and not have conflict be the dominating factor during our Christmas season. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, who can do all things through us and in us. In his name we pray. Amen.